0: All right, so the key word for this morning is satisfaction. So we've had 21 weeks of studying the book of Revelation. We've covered a lot of territory if you've been here both seasons. And the one word that is going to kind of come up repeatedly as we wrap up the book and as we finalize this, this last chapter is satisfaction. Because we're looking into heaven. We're looking into the eternal state. And if you remember last week, we kind of got our introduction to that as we looked at the new heavens and the new earth. God is going to make all things new. He's going to recreate. He's going to recreate the universe. He's going to recreate this planet. He's going to recreate everything. Why? Because everything is marred by sin. The creation groans because of sin. This earth is damaged because of sin. And so he's not going to put a bandaid on it. He's going to recreate it. All of creation. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean there's going to be a sun? Probably not because we know in chapters 21 and 22, there is no sun. There is no moon because we don't need them anymore. They're the light. God, the father, God, the son. They're the light. They produce the glory, all that we need. But are there going to be stars? Are there going to be other planets? We, I don't know. It doesn't tell us. All we know is he's going to make all things new. And the, the imagery seems to be that of Going back to the things, the way things were when he made the universe to begin with, the garden, the picture of the garden. You're going to see a connection in just a minute between Genesis chapter 1 and the last chapter of the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22. We saw the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, created by God to come to earth and it will be our abode. It's where we will live with Him. And that's really the key of chapter 21. It, and it said over and over again, He will be with us. We will live with Him. It'll be marked by the presence of God. One of the greatest things about heaven are not the streets of gold, it's not the pearly gates, it's not all the trappings of wealth and opulence that seem to be described. It's the fact that we will be with him and he will be with us. No more barriers, no more mediators. And the reason the city, I think, is described with such beauty is because it reflects the beauty of God, the glory of God, the holiness of God. Everything about the city is really a picture of God. It's not about, again, the streets of gold. You know, we're not going to be tempted to chip up pieces and take it home. It's, it's, that's not the point. The point in all of this is God. It's all about God. Undiminished satisfaction, there's that word. This is really hard for you and I to get our heads and hearts around because we don't know what undiminished satisfaction looks like. We really don't. You know, we, we buy things because we think that thing will satisfy us, and it lasts, what, about six months if we're lucky? And then we're dissatisfied with it because something else comes out. You buy the newest iPhone and then they, bam, next month they come out with a new one. And yours is obsolete and we're dissatisfied. You buy a new car and you get your first door ding and you're dissatisfied. You know, it's, we're, we have built in dissatisfaction in this life, but in heaven, undiminished satisfaction, that's hard to understand, but that's the picture. And it's illustrated in the water of life, which we're going to talk about in more detail in just a second. Unblemished holiness. Can anybody even remotely imagine what that's like? Undiminished holiness, not just God, but you, that you will be holy, completely holy. And everybody you interface with will be completely holy. You have never experienced that in your life. And you never will in this life. You're going to go to work. And you're gonna be around what? Unholy people. And they're gonna be around unholy people, and you're one of them. By the way, you act at times. Even though you're in Christ, you can act unholy. You can act not set apart. Well, in heaven, guess what? We'll all be set apart. We'll all be perfectly holy. We'll all be perfectly righteous, and there is no wickedness, we're told in chapter 21 and chapter 22. And by virtue of that, guess what? None of these things are there sin, sorrow, tears. Mourning, pain, suffering. Again, I can't imagine that. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm off on Mondays, and so Monday I worked in my yard. And I took advantage of that beautiful day, and I worked all day in my yard. And by Tuesday morning, when I got up to go teach Bible study, I could barely get out of bed. And I had all these I had this pain, the sorrow, the suffering, and a little bit of sin because I was so angry at this falling apart body. I'm not going to have that in heaven. You're not going to have that in heaven. So this picture of heaven is pretty significant. And as we move into the last chapter, we're going to see some pretty incredible things that I think many of us have never noticed before. If we've noticed them, we've blown right past them, and we've never really dug into them. But I think what we get here is a picture of, again, complete satisfaction, something we don't know here. So here's how it starts out. Chapter 22, verse 1, "'Then the angel showed me, John, the river of the water of life.'" brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So he sees this river and it's flowing from the throne of God. Is it a literal river? I don't see any reason not to take it as such. Is it metaphorical? It could be. But let's just let's just say it's a, it's a river and it's flowing from the throne of God. It's flowing from God the Father and God the Son. It was brought up in chapter 21. Here's what it said. Jesus says, it is done. I am the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end to the thirsty. I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. So Jesus in chapter 21 is telling John, the end is here. Not only is the end here, I am the end. I'm the beginning and the end. He was at creation. Now he's at the recreation of the world. He's the Beginning of all things, he's the end of all things. He's bringing to culmination the redemptive plan of God. And he specifically says to all those who are thirsty, who are thirsty, I'm going to give from the spring of the water of life. That idea of thirstiness is spiritual thirst. That you have unquenched spiritual thirst. Even though you're in Christ, you live wanting more spiritually. You want more physically, you want more emotionally. All of that's true, but all of us have an unquenched, still unmet need for spiritual thirst. And God is doing that, but it's not yet complete. It's not like it will be. I wake up and I'm not the man I want to be. I'm not the Christian I thought I would be. I'm not as far along as I I had hoped to be at this point in my life. And and it's that, that thirst for more. He who hungers and thirsts for righteousness will be satisfied, Jesus told us. So this hunger and thirst for righteousness is going to be met there. And it's not completely met here. That's why we're always dissatisfied. We're dissatisfied with so many things in life. We're dissatisfied also with our spiritual life, and we get disappointed. And that's why we read certain books, or we talk to somebody, and they say, well, I went to this seminar, and it really lit me on fire with my spiritual walk. Oh, I'm going to that seminar. Why? Because we're dissatisfied. Oh, I read this book, and it just revolutionized my life. And so we go to that seminar. Uh, because why? We have this thirst. We have a built-in thirst, especially those of us in Christ, for more, for righteousness. But in heaven, that need will be met completely and perpetually forever and ever. You'll never thirst for righteousness again. You won't have to. It'll be always met. And again, why? Because you're, you're standing in the presence of God the Father and God the Son, undiminished holiness, undiminished fellowship, never broken again because of sin, because you won't sin. And so your thirst will be constantly met. That's the picture of the water flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb. Those two are what? They're the source of eternal life. Now, one of the things we have to be careful of is when this side of heaven, when we talk about eternal life, we think of salvation. And that's not wrong, it's just incomplete. See, we think of salvation, I came to faith in Christ and I received eternal life, which by that we mean I'm gonna live in heaven. I'm going to heaven, I will live eternally. But it's, it's all linked to this point in time that I made a decision to follow Christ or I walked down the aisle or I prayed a prayer, whatever it was, that's eternal life. In Revelation chapter 22, eternal life is the eternal state. It's the way we're going to live and it's more than just non-ending existence. If you think about it, non-ending existence is really more like hell if it's not filled with joy, contentment, satisfaction. Because the picture of hell, guys, is one of eternal existence without what? Any joy, any contentment, any satisfaction. You're never satisfied. You're always in pain. You're always suffering. There's never an end to it. So heaven is so much more, and I think that's the point of this last chapter. It's not just talking about s- salvation, it's talking about eternal sustenance. Why is there a picture of water flowing? Because life is all about water. It's a, we don't live without water. And especially in the first century when John was penning this is that water in that context was really important to life. They lived in an arid environment, the, the Jews did, and so... It meant a lot to them to have this picture of water. We take water for granted. You go to certain cultures and they can't take water for granted and they know it's important to life. We can go buy it at the store. We can get it in bottles. We can get it in jugs. We can get it from the tap. We can get it filtered, unfiltered, spring water, you name it. We can get water anywhere we want, but that wasn't true then. And that's why this picture of satisfaction is so critical as we look at heaven, total sustenance. And where does it come from? God, the father and God, the son, they will meet every one of our needs for how long forever and ever all life. Everything you have ever wanted from life will come from them. And what that means is you're, you're never going to go look anywhere else. You won't be tempted to go look anywhere else. And right now, we're tempted to go look other places for life, for satisfaction, for fulfillment, for joy, for contentment. But in heaven, no, it'll flow constantly. It'll never dry up. And so you'll never be tempted to go look anywhere else. And again, all of this is hard for me to imagine because that's not my reality, this side of heaven. So the idea of spiritual refreshment that never ends, it's never diminished, really ties back to what Jesus told the woman at the well. And and this chapter links to so many other chapters in the Bible. It's pretty fascinating. But here's what Jesus told that woman. She went there to get water. What kind of water? Physical water. From a well dug by men so that they could slack their thirst. He says, whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. And, of course, her response was, hey, give me some of that water. That way I never have to come to this well again. And she missed the point. He's talking about spiritual life, spiritual fulfillment, spiritual thirst being slacked. Ezekiel nine says, life will flourish wherever this water flows. Life will flourish. We know that if you go to certain parts of the country where it's more uh, desert environment, they have... Uh, an oasis. Wherever there's a spring of water, there's an oasis. Life flourishes in the environment of that water. Well, guess what? In heaven, life is going to flourish because there's this never ending source of spiritual nourishment. Isaiah says, with joy, you will drink deeply from the fountain of salvation. Again, don't think of salvation as just this point in time when I came to faith in Christ. It is eternal salvation, having all your needs met, eternally, perpetually, never-ending satisfaction. And guess what? Not like what the world promises you. Not like what the false gods of this world promise you because they promise you satisfaction and it never ends up being delivered. And it makes me think of the people of Israel, and if you know the story of the people of Israel, they had a constant problem with being satisfied with God. They had a constant problem with being satisfied with with God. And one of the things we read is Jeremiah chapter two, verse 13. There's this indictment. God says about the people of Israel, his chosen people, my people have done two evil things. Now catch this. They have abandoned me. Well, that's pretty serious. You, you've abandoned God? Who in the right mind would abandon God? We do it every day. We turn our back on God and we go over here. God says, I sat, I, I'm going to satisfy all your needs. And we go, hmm. Probably not. This will satisfy my needs. This will make me happy. This will make me complete. This will make me satisfied. This will bring me joy. This will bring me contentment. And when you do that, it's not that that thing is sinful or wrong. It's that you're, in essence, turning your back on God and saying, you're not enough. That's exactly what they did. They abandoned me, God, the fountain of living water. Catch that imagery again. And they have dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water at all. Now, a cistern in that day and age was simply, they would carve out of a rock a hole, and when it rained, it would fill with water. And that's where they would go get their water. Well, he makes this indictment that you've, you've dug out a cistern that's cracked. It can't even hold water. So you've put time, energy, and effort into something that you hope will replace the fountain of living water, and it'll never deliver what you need. That is true of every man in this room including me. What have you dug? What have you made? What have you put time and energy into that you hope will bring you satisfaction in place of whether you meant to or not, you did it in place of God. And guess what? You were never satisfied. And so you go dig another cistern and then another cistern and then another cistern. And you don't realize that digging cisterns is not the answer to your problem. More of what this world has to offer is not the answer to your problem. It's God who is to be our sustenance. And that's the picture of heaven. There will be no other sources. Nobody's going to be digging cisterns in heaven. And and again, that's hard for us to imagine because that's our predisposition in this life. But in heaven, nobody's going to go, "Mm, I'm not satisfied. I'm going to go dig a cistern. I'm going to go after this God or that God. I'm going to worship at this shrine or this other shrine because you will need satisfaction from nothing and no one else. You'll always be satisfied. And you'll never suffer from what? Dissatisfaction. Think about that. Just let that kind of soak in that you'll never be dissatisfied. Why do we buy things? Because we're dissatisfied. It's rarely that we need them. And I've told you guys this before. I spent 29 years in advertising, and my job was to get you to buy things with money you don't have, to buy things you don't need, to impress people you don't even like. And I was good at it. That's advertising. If you boil it all down, I got to get you dissatisfied with whatever you have, your clothes, your car, your house, because you need this one. And if I can't make you dissatisfied, you're not going to buy the new thing. So part of advertising is just to make you dissatisfied with what you already have, much of which God provided. That's not enough. You won't be loved. You won't be liked. I I read an article yesterday that said the Generation Z, I think it's called now, and the Millennials are the most socially connected generations we've ever had, and they have more depression and more loneliness than any generation we've ever had because they're looking for satisfaction from a source other than God. You know, I talk to my daughters, and they'll go online, and they'll, they'll say, oh, all of my friends, you know, their marriages are so good, and they're just they're so happy. And I'm like, do you really believe that? <laughs> well, I look on Facebook, and, and I'm like, so that's now your source of truth, Facebook. Have you ever seen anybody post a bad picture of themselves on Facebook? No. I read an article yesterday that that came out from a a group of um, doctors who do uh, plastic surgery, and they said that they are getting more and more requests from young people to have things changed on them because of the way they look in their selfies. They'll take a selfie, and think about it. You're holding a camera this far from your face, and so your nose gets 30% bigger, you know, your, your face looks kind of blown out of proportion, and okay, I need my nose fixed. And the doctor goes, why? Well, look at this picture. That's not what you look like. Yeah, but that's what everyone sees. But if I change your nose, it's still going to look 30% bigger when you take a picture holding your camera that close. But it's dissatisfaction. At the end of the day, that's what this is all about. In heaven, there is none. Again, let that sink in. Look at this, Exodus chapter 17, one of the classic stories of the Israelites in their habit of dissatisfaction. At the Lord's command, the whole community of Israel, they're going from, what, Egypt to the promised land. They left the wilderness of sin, kind of rightly named, and they moved from place to place. Eventually they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink there. There's that imagery of water again. So once more, the people complained against Moses, give us water to drink, they demanded. So what happens? They were tormented by thirst. Now, it doesn't, I don't necessarily think it means that they were literally about to die. They had whipped themselves into a frenzy, and they continued to argue with Moses. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? Are you trying to kill us, our children and our livestock, with thirst? What a ridiculous question. What's he supposed to say? Well, yeah, yeah, that's pretty much, that's my M.O. That's, that's the whole reason I did this. They know the answer, but what? They're They're hacked. So God responds, and I love what he says. I will stand before you on the rock at Mount Sinai, strike the rock, and guess what? Water will come gushing out. What's their problem? No water. They're tormented. They're angry. They're frustrated. They're dissatisfied. So what does God do? He meets their satisfaction or their need, and he provides them with water, and it comes out of a rock. Then the people will be able to drink. But catch this. Even after that, here's what they say. They argued with Moses and tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord here with us or not? Now, wait a minute. They didn't say that. Nowhere in the preceding verses does it ever say that those words came out of their mouth. What it's saying is their dissatisfaction was basically the equivalent of saying, is the Lord here? Has the Lord abandoned us? See, they're complaining to Moses, but they're really directing it at God saying, did you, Moses, bring us out of of Egypt to kill us? They're really pointing their finger at God. God, did you bring us out here to kill us? Have you abandoned us? Are you no longer with us? See, when you go to any other source but God, you are saying, you've left me. You've abandoned me. You're not satisfying me. You're not enough for me. And again, the reason I'm beating that drum is because we don't really understand the glory of heaven how great heaven is going to be. We think heaven is a slightly improved version of this. I'm sorry, guys, but if that's the case, I don't want to go there. A slightly improved version of this is not that great as far as I'm concerned. Heaven is nothing like this. Heaven is so completely different than this. No pain, no suffering, no heartache, no death, no sin, and complete satisfaction. So what does it tell me? This river... It's flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. It flows down the middle of the street of the city, the city Jerusalem, on either side of the river. The tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit is growing. Now that I'd just ring a bell in your head because if you've read the Bible at all, if you're very familiar with scripture, the tree of life is familiar to you. Well, what's going on here? And this is part of this chapter that most of us have never looked at and most of us don't understand and we just blow right past it. What's the significance of the tree of life? Something pretty important is going on here because the first time we ever hear the tree of life is Genesis chapter 1, and we never really hear about it again until Revelation chapter 22, first chapter of the Bible, last chapter of the Bible. Why does God choose to bookend his scriptures with the tree of life? What's the significance of the tree of life? Look at Genesis 129. God said to Adam, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. So he tells the guy, I'm placing you in this garden. I've made it. I've made it. And every time he made something, he said, what? It is good. Now, when you and I say something's good, that means it's probably adequate. You know, Honey, look what I made. It's pretty good. And she looks at it and goes, mm-hmm, you know, it's, it's okay. But when God makes something and he says it's good, guess what? It's really, really good. So he says, everything's good. I've made all these t- trees that you can eat from. They're not eating meat. They're, eat- they're vegetarians. I hate to break the news to you. I'm not telling you heaven's ve- a vegetarian state. I-, I don't know. I hope not. But then he goes on in chapter 2. The Lord planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So it's telling us that there's all these trees, but it specifically mentions two, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he says, everything is good to eat. Everything is appealing in its sight. Everything looks good and will taste good. But what do we know? God said, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Now, he's just told us all the trees and two specific trees. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. So only one tree was commanded by God. You can't eat of that one. They were told not to eat of that one tree, what, which means they could eat of what? The tree of life. They were eating of the tree of life. Why is it called the tree of life? I think we're going to find that out as we look at chapter 22 of Revelation. But I think the clear inference is this, this tree was called that because it gave them life. It produced in them life, and they were free to eat of that tree and every other tree in the garden, as long as they were in their sinless state, which is how they were created. And I believe that tree, the tree of life, was the key to their existence. I believe as long as they ate of that tree, they would live forever. As long as they stayed in fellowship with God, were satisfied with God, walked with God, talked with God in that perfect environment that he said is good, they would live forever. And as long as they avoided the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But what happened? We know the story. They disobeyed. They ate of the one tree that God said, don't eat. Now think about that. All these trees, how many varieties? I have no clue, but every one of them was free to eat. Every one of them was tasty, looked delicious, was attractive. And they just couldn't keep their hands off the one he said, don't eat. It's a picture of what? Dissatisfaction. These trees are not enough. The tree of life is not enough. I got to have that tree. And that's what the enemy used. The one thing that had been put off limits, they had to have. And they ate it. They sinned. And see what they picture for you and I is dissatisfaction with God. They weren't satisfied with God. They walked with him. They talked with him. They wanted to be like God. Now catch that because that's the essence of your sin and my sin. You may say, well, I've never wanted to be God. No, you have because anytime you reject God and you're dissatisfied with God, you, in essence, want to be your own God. The very fact that you go out and you you build cracked cisterns is your attempt to satisfy your own needs. I want to make my own cistern. I want to create my own source of satisfaction. That is you trying to be God. That's what's happened to them. See, the serpent came to them and he twisted the word of God. and He says, well, you, you're not going to die if you eat of that tree. You won't die. He says, God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it and you will be like God. Bam. You're going to be like God. Eat of it. That's the reason he want, doesn't want you to have it. Eat of the tree and then you'll know good and evil. What's the important point there? It wasn't that they were going to know good and evil from a, a righteous standpoint. They were going to experience good and evil for the first time in their lives. It's not a knowledge. That word really has to do, they're going to experience good and evil for the first time in their lives. See, up until this point, they've experienced no evil, all good. But now they, they, they by taking what God said no to, they were going to experience both sides of that coin, the evil. And what do we know? Evil came into the world. Sin came into the world. Now they got marred by sin. Creation got marred by sin. And guess what? You and I have been marred by sin. Who's sin? Adam and Eve's. It's been passed down from generation to generation. Why? Because they rejected the fountain of living water and they dug their own cistern. That's really what they did. All these trees, including the tree of life, will live forever as long as we eat it. But you know what? we got to have this tree. And they dug a cistern that had cracks in it because guess what happened immediately? Sin, death, decay, corruption, no more peace in the world, no more perfectness. It was no longer good. It was marred by sin. And look what happens next. Genesis 3 tells us, God said, look, the human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil. What if they reach out and take fruit from the tree of life and eat it? Then they will live forever. And I don't think that means they haven't been eating it. I think they have been eating it. But he's saying, if they now eat of it in their fallen state, they will live forever in their fallen state. They will now be perpetually in sin apart from me in a fallen state and I can't have that. You can't have eternal life and a sinful state at the same time. Those two things don't go together. So what does God do? He casts them out of the garden. And here's what you see happen. Once they lost access to the tree of life, their longevity of life drops like a rock. It just starts to diminish. And the scriptures tell us Adam lived 930 years, Lamech lived 770 years. And you see this pattern begin to take place where they started living shorter and shorter lives. Why? Because they no longer had access to what? The tree of life. So they began to die off. And then comes the flood. They became more and more sinful to where God said, I'm fed up, I'm going to destroy it all. And he destroys everyone on the planet except Noah and his family. And then God says, my spirit will not put up with humans for such a long time, for they are only mortal flesh. In the future, their normal lifespan will be more, no more than 120 years. You've probably never even seen that before. See, not only was their longevity dropping like a rock, God brings it real low. And he says, nobody's going to live past 120 years. Has somebody probably done that? Yes. See, he's basically saying, I've capped it. It's rare for anybody to live that long. My mom turned 98 in December. That's rare anymore for anybody to live that long. See, we're not built for that. We have fallen. We are in a fallen state. We no longer have access to the tree of life. And yet, what do we know in heaven? What do we know from chapter 22? Here comes the tree of life again and it's got fruit all kinds of fruit it it it's got 12 different seasons worth of fruit what does that mean what is it what kind of fruit is it is it apples and oranges and you know, i don't know but it means that it's it's blooming and it's producing fruit perpetually throughout eternity and the leaves even the leaves of this tree have benefit Everything about this tree provides life and sustenance and satisfaction. Twelve kinds of fruit, we're told, come from this tree. Leaves that bring healing to the nations. The whole tree is a source of blessing. Now catch the picture. From the throne of God and the Lamb comes this river. On either side of the river, the river of life, is, are the trees of life, of which the people living then, you and I, will be eating the fruit of that tree And we will be benefiting from the leaves of that tree. It's all about blessing. See, Jesus told one of the churches in chapter 2 of this very same book, to the one who conquers, who survives, who makes it to the end, which we all will because he's the one who keeps us, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. What's his promise? You're going to get to heaven and you're going to eat of this tree. And you will live forever it's a source of healing to the nations, it says. What does that mean? Well, the word nations there is Gentiles. It's, it's a source of healing to everyone who eats of it, but particularly Gentiles. And the word there is not telling us that there's sickness in heaven, because we know there's not. No more sin, no more sorrow, no more death, no more sickness of any kind. It, the word is therapia, where we get therapeutic. It is life-sustaining. It is life-promoting. It, it It benefits our life in heaven. Everything is flowing from God through the river of life into the tree of life, and our life is never without satisfaction. It's never without spiritual sustenance. And again, that's hard for us to imagine. It's hard for us to understand, but that's the picture that God is giving John through this book as he wraps up the book. He goes, there's no longer anything accursed. The throne of God and the lamb will be in it. His servants will worship him. And he's reiterating what he told us in chapter 21. We're going to see God's face. His name will be in our foreheads. We'll be marked as belonging to him. There will be no more night, no more darkness, no need of the light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. One more time, just telling you and I that we will be with God and he will be with us and he will meet all of our needs from light to sustenance, from water to food. He will do everything we need. And then he says in verse six, these words are trustworthy and true. We've heard that before in chapter 21. And the Lord, the God of spirits, the spirits of the prophets has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. We heard that at the beginning of, of the book. He said, write down what will soon take place. Doesn't mean it's gonna happen tomorrow, but it could. It's imminent. Live as if it's imminent. Because Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And we're going to camp on that in just a second. But that is very, very critical to this book and why I chose to teach this book. So John says, I hear all this. I'm hearing this angel speak. I'm hearing Jesus speak. And what happens? When I heard them, I fell down to worship at the foot of the angel who showed me these things. But the angel says, Man, don't do that. What are you doing worshiping me? I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. See, that's the point of this book. Why did we study this book? Not to know how the story ends. That's important. But to get the end of the story so that we would worship the God that brings the end of the story about. Worship God. My hope is that this book has made you want to worship your God more, not less. Because he tells John, who's been writing all this stuff down, worship God. Don't worship me. Don't worship an angel. Worship God. And then he tells them, don't seal up the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is near. There it is again. It's soon. I'm coming soon. It's going to happen. It could be right around the corner. Then he says, let the evildoer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. What in the world does that mean? Because he says, I'm coming soon. See, he's telling him, it's around the corner. It could happen today. It could happen tomorrow. Be ready. Be prepared. Because guess what? I'm coming. So he addresses two groups. First, he addresses the unbeliever, and he calls them evildoers. That's a description of their actions. It's how they live. And then he says, they're filthy. That's their condition, their spiritual condition. he basically is saying, just keep doing what you're doing. I'm coming. You may not expect it. You may not believe it. But guess what? Your lack of belief doesn't mean I'm not coming. So just keep doing what you're doing. Dean addresses the believer. He calls them the righteous. That's a picture of their behavior. They do righteous things because they are righteous before God. They're holy. They're set apart. That's their status from God's standpoint. And he tells them the same thing. Keep doing what you're doing. Don't give up. Don't give in. Don't, don't lose hope. So the persistently rebellious are going to just continue to be, be that way. And we see that all around us. Doesn't mean we don't share the gospel, but guess what? The majority of the people on this planet are going to continue to do what they're doing. Regardless of the fact that Jesus says, I'm coming back. Regardless of whether we share the gospel or not, they're going to keep doing what they're doing. But he says, the faithful need to keep doing what they're doing. John, don't don't stop doing what you're doing. Tell those seven churches not to do what they're doing, to stop doing what they're doing. Christ Chapel, you men on Thursday morning sitting in this room, don't stop doing what you're doing, the righteous things that you've been called to do, because guess what? I'm, I'm right around the corner. I'm coming back. Keep doing it. And when I come back, I'm going to bring my recompense. I'm going to pay back everybody for what they've done, the righteous and the wicked. And he, once again, he says, I'm the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the last, the first and the last. I am the beginning. I started it. I'm going to finish it. I created it. I can fix it. And that's what he's going to do. And he says that those of us who continue, who live, who conquer, who do what he calls us to do, we will have rights to what? The tree of life. And until I studied this book in detail, I've never seen that. See, I just think it's, you know, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, I'm going to live forever, but there is sustenance in heaven. There is satisfaction. It's not like we're never going to be hungry again. Have you ever been satisfied with a good meal? you go, man, that was so good. That's the picture here, but it's going to come from God and it's going to come from this tree of life. And we'll get to enter the gates and we'll get to eat of the fruit of the tree of life and enjoy the benefits of the river of life coming from God, the father and God, the son. But outside, guess what? All the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexual immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, everyone who loves and practices falsehood, they're outside. They are in hell. They're suffering their eternal punishment while we we enjoy the tree of life, complete satisfaction forever. Well, then he tells him, Jesus speaks to him and he says, I've sent my angel. He's told you some things. But he says, I'm the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star, And Jesus offers something, an invitation. He's speaking to you and I. He says, come. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. He's offering an invitation to anybody and everybody, come. It's going to happen. This stuff is true. You can rely on it. If you have spiritual thirst, come. But he says, invitation, come. Beautiful offer, Come but then he gives a warning. And, and I, I don't want you to miss this warning, guys. This is so important to me. I've had different individuals come to me and say, why are you teaching this book? A, it's in the Bible. Two, it says I'm blessed if I do it. So I'm always out for a blessing, so I'm going to do it. Three, I think it's important. It's, it's, it's God ordained. But listen to what he says. I warn everyone, this is Jesus speaking, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, guess what? God will add to him the plagues described in this book. Now just go back and think about 100-pound hailstones, boils all over your body that you can't get rid of, seas turning to blood, all the wicked things, not wicked, but the the judgment that God has brought on the world during the seven years of tribulation. He's saying, if you add to this book, guess what? That's what's going to happen to you. That's pretty serious stuff, right? Don't add to this book. Well, What does that mean? Don't take away from this book. Don't take away from the words of this book. Or guess what? You're in serious trouble with God. Well, it it doesn't mean how you interpret the book, what I mean. He's not saying if you're pre-mill, post-mill, ah-mill, that's the problem. There are men in this room who don't agree with the way I've taught this book. They don't interpret the book the way I've, in, I've, I've interpreted it. That's not the issue here. That, that's not, you're, you're going to be slammed with plagues if you are post-mill. That's not what he's saying. It's about diminishing the importance of this book or embellishing this book to where it doesn't mean what God intended it to mean. And I, my prayer has been that I haven't done that that I've stayed true to the text, I've stayed true to the the, the scriptures. Are there other opinions? Yes, but do not diminish this book. Don't make light of this book. Don't act like this book doesn't belong because it's prophecy. It's prophecy. It said it at the beginning and it reiterates it at the end. This is a book of prophecy. It's not John's opinion. It's not some false author's opinion. This is the word of God and it is true. So I'm not allowed to dismiss it Discount it, treat it lightly, or ignore it. And how many of us ignore the book of Revelation? We just go, don't get it, don't understand it, doesn't matter anyway, it's going to end, it's going to end. So we just ignore it. Don't do that. That's a dangerous thing for us to do because in the book are blessings. We're not allowed to put my will on it or your will on it or make it say what you want it to say. Again, I pray that I haven't done that. But we got to treat this thing with respect. I might not like what it says, but guess what? It's the word of God, and I need to treat it as such. Because what does Jesus say? It's trustworthy, believable, and it's true. It's reliable. So he tells John, write it down. It's a book of prophecy, and don't seal it up. Don't seal it up. Because if we do treat it with respect, we will share in the tree of life and in the holy city. Well, then finally, one last invitation. Surely I'm coming, Jesus says. I'm coming soon. Be ready. Be prepared. And look at John's response. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Is that your response today? When you hear Jesus say, behold, I'm coming soon, is your response, whoa, tap the brakes. I got some living to do. I didn't get that promotion yet. I didn't get that bass boat yet. I, I, we, I got a trip planned to Europe. You know, I, I got to take that trip. You know, when I was a 12 year old kid and my dad would say this, which was one of his favorite phrases, yay, Lord Jesus come. I'd go in my heart, not to his face. Hey, old man, hold off. I haven't had sex yet. You know, there's some things I want to do before the Lord Jesus comes back. Is that your attitude? Behold, I'm coming soon. Whoa, 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 Wait a minute mm not yet. See, John's was, amen, let it be, so be it. Come, Lord Jesus. I'm going to just look at these, these passages real quickly. Now, if you, you have every spiritual gift you need as you eagerly wait for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you eagerly waiting? John tells the Philippians, we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives, and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. Is that true of you? How about this one to the Galatians? By faith, we eagerly await through the spirit, the hope of righteousness, our completed righteousness. We wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Is this true of you? Are you waiting eagerly for the return of Christ? Is it important to you? When he says, come, are you ready to come? Or you're like, "Mm, give, give it another couple of 10 years. Are you eager? Are you ready? Well, here's your questions. What is it that keeps us from wanting Jesus to come back? And this is where you need to be brutally honest with yourself and with one another. What is keeping you from wanting him to come back? What kinds of things in your life that you long for, hope for, desire for, keep you from saying, amen, come today? Come today. Because those things are cracked cisterns. They're cracked cisterns. If you do desire for Jesus to come, is that desire motivated by what you hope to escape? or by what you hope to gain. See, my dad shared hell with me and I ran from hell towards Jesus, but that's really the wrong motivation. I was escaping something. I really wasn't attracted to heaven because heaven sounded kind of boring to be honest, but I ran from hell. What's attracting you? Is it good or are you trying to escape? And then finally, this is key, end your time in prayer thanking God for all that he's shown you in this book. Ask him to help you to live with the end in mind. So that you could say, come, Lord Jesus. Father, I pray for the men as they talk around the tables. I pray that you would bless their conversation. May it be honest and true. May they share. And may, Father, they pray this prayer that they would live with the end in mind. That we, they would long and I would long, eagerly long for your return, your soon return, Lord Jesus. That we might all be able to say, amen, come, Lord Jesus. And I pray this in Christ's name, amen.